You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. I've learned that you don't do it alone. You learn so many different things from so many different coaches. That's an elite learning environment. Failure is not a problem. How you deal with it is a problem. How to be resilient. How important it is to infuse joy in the process of learning. To be a good coach, you've got to give more than you take. What an interesting life it is to be a leader. Hello and welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast, where we believe that there is no algorithm for leadership. And so we interview great sports coaches from around the world to try and find ideas to help all of us be better leaders. Today's episode focuses on the topic of serial winning coaches. And Dr. David Turner and I are joined for the discussion by Professor Cliff Mallet and Professor Sergio Lara Bessial, who have just written a great book called Learning from Serial Winning Coaches, based on their research interviewing 17 of these coaches across 10 sports and 10 different countries. As you will hear in the interview, both men are very passionate about coaching. Cliff Mallett is an Olympic and World Championship medal winning coach himself. He is also a distinguished professor of sports psychology and coaching at the University of Queensland in Australia and has developed a world-renowned online program in sports coaching and consults nationally and internationally for many elite sporting organisations. While Sergio is also an international basketball coach who has led teams into four European championships, as well as being a world-renowned professor of sports coaching at Leeds Beckett University in England. He also conducts applied research into coach development and youth sport and consults globally with organisations such as FIFA, UEFA, FIBA, Nike and the IOC. There are so many great ideas in this interview. It's a complete masterclass. 
but a few that stuck with me afterwards were the idea of connection before correction when it comes to coaching, as you can't teach anyone until you've connected with them and they know you care. The importance of a shared purpose, holding each other accountable and respecting the individual when it comes to building connection within the team. And how the great coaches have a philosophy that contains clear values and principles that they use as a framework to guide their work, particularly when they face dilemmas. And just before we go to the interview, today's podcast is brought to you by the Macquarie University Business School's MBA program. Designed to empower, challenge, and transform, the Macquarie MBA gives you the business skills and knowledge you need to succeed in an evolving global economy. The program bridges the gap between theory and real-world application, bringing together world-leading professors, executives, and industry partners to teach you how business can be used for good. I have just started working with the team at Macquarie on some projects and can attest to the quality of the people and material. To find out more, search for Macquarie University Business School's MBA. And now, please enjoy our episode on Serial Winning Coaches. You're listening to the Lessons from the Great Coaches podcast. Professor Sergio and Professor Cliff. And Dr. David, of course, can I welcome you all back to the Great Coaches Podcast. Thank you. Very excited to have you here tonight. You've just written a fantastic new book called Learning from Serial Winning Coaches. And David and I are going to be interviewing you about what you've learned and uncovered tonight. But before we begin, as I always start, Sergio, could you go first and tell us where you are in the world and what you've been up to so far today? So I am in Manchester, in the beautiful city of Manchester, yet a little bit dark and rainy, but it's still beautiful. Uh, and this morning is still pretty early here. Um, I've just been preparing my session for tonight. Um, I like to get up early and, and prepare my session before the day gets going. I'm just trying to tidy up my inbox, uh, which looks like a bombsite. <laughs> so that's been my morning. And, uh, and Cliff, uh, you're in a different part of the world. Yes, I live in Brisbane, which is in Queensland and sunny part of Australia. Um, I've spent the day at my university, University of Queensland, doing some uh, academic work, like appraising fellow staff members and uh, waiting through a number of emails and and doing a bit of editing. Well, thank you both for joining us today to talk about your terrific new book, which I think there are a lot of coaches and leaders listening to this who are going to run out and get it. David, I'm going to hand over to you to kick off uh, the interview. Lovely to virtually meet you guys. Um, You've both written extensively on sports coaching. So um, I wonder why uh, they interest you so much. Perhaps you could answer that, Cliff? Uh, uh, Yeah, look, um, I guess I'm a strong advocate for sport, and as a young person, I played a lot of sport. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, I was reasonably good at it. Not a superstar, but played a lot of sports. So I became a phys ed teacher, and part of that role, you uh, you do some coaching. Um, I thought I was okay at it. I also realised how hard it was, <laughs> and uh, and coaching a whole range of sports and people. Um, but I think my personal experiences, both as a coach and then getting into coach education and development, um, has really sort of spurred me to pursue a deeper understanding of coaches and their work and how we might assess the quality of their work 
Um, because I think um, I'm very wedded to and advocate for the value proposition of sport, that sport is a, a wonderful space in which we can develop young people um, and contribute back to society. Um, and so how can we help coaches who are central actors in that context to actually um, shape an environment to allow other people to thrive? And in and, and my journey, particularly in the last uh, 20 years, I've just met some wonderful people who were scholars in this space and you learn so much from each other, which has been really rewarding. That's a lovely answer. And it's almost like looking in the mirror because that's that's very much my career as well. Um, Sergio, is there any difference with yours? I, I know, for instance, that you describe yourself as a, a practitioner who does research, for instance. So I think you value that that practical side, right? Yeah, and, and I think that um, I, I came into academia quite late, if you want. Um, and... And my reason for coming into academia or, or having an interest in, let's call it coaching science, to call it something, right, uh, is because I wanted to be a better coach initially. Um, it was a really a very selfish reason initially. Um, and as time went by, really, uh, uh, there was a transformation a bit like Cliff was saying about actually be great to support other people. Uh, as I got older, because uh, I started coaching really early. I was 21 when I started coaching. Um, so I'm, I've done nearly 30 years of coaching. And you realize, well, at some point, it stops being about you. And, and you think, well, I've got some life experience and also some academic experience to try and support other people, maybe give them the helping hand that I didn't have when I was trying to mm. to, to, to become a coach. Um, and, and so it's been that going from, it was about me trying to get better uh, to actually thinking it'd be great to support other people to to, to achieve whatever it is they want to achieve in coaching. And, and, and then... Surrounding all of that, I've always been really curious. I just love finding mm. out more about people and reading, and yeah, I, I can't get enough. Especially in this in this area around coaching and, and relationships, and not only coaching. I think there's an, another a few. I always say to Cliff, I, I love learning more about uh, film directors and orchestra conductors because they're all doing the same thing, really, uh, and leading teams into this kind of thing. That's it's, it's just the. I, I just want to know more about how how they go about it. Really. Mm, that's really interesting. So before I hand over to Paul, I think just to to summarise that sometimes the journey can be from being relatively selfish to relatively selfless, and we end we've all ended up in the same space of coaching the coaches, which is what I do day to day as well. Um, okay, really interesting, and I'm sure we'll revisit some of that later. Over to Paul. Sergio, I'd like to pick up on this idea of you being an academic and a coach, and. I'd like to ask you, after studying all of these serial winning coaches, as you guys describe them in your work, how has it changed the way that you coach? Um, a great deal, Paul. Um, it's become, I don't know, some, sometimes I think it's a bit pathological, really, because I, I kind of constantly check myself against the research, really, a little bit. Um, but um, I, whenever we present the research to other people, um, we always say, look, there, there is no recipe here. You know, not, not every coach, you know, out of the 17 coaches that we work with, they were all different. Uh, we try to identify some common traits, but uh, but they were all different. And the way they go about things might be slightly different, right? Uh, so I, I always say, look, in when you hear me tell you about all these things, there might be things that are you already, you're already doing these things, things that are not you just yet, but you would like towards them. And things that you don't want to know about because it's not you. It doesn't fit with you, who you are or your environment, right? So if I look at it that way, 
uh, in terms of the things that I already was or I think I am, um, I've always been really diligent and hardworking and, and curious and studious, right? Uh, so, so that's something that it was nice to know that these people are like that as well. Um, things that I, that I wasn't like, and I always blame it on my uh, Spanish uh, heritage, right? Um, emotional control, not my strength. Um, and I think if it's one of those things that, uh, again, you know, we were one of, the, one of the biggest findings of our re research was these guys are pretty stable, <laughs> um, and I thought that I had improvements to make in that space. Let's let's put it that way, uh, both on and off the uh, the pitch, really, and and becoming more resilient to failure, and perhaps becoming more open minded. I think because I started coaching really early, I thought I knew it all. Um, and over the last few years, really, uh, you know, it's typical, right? The more you know, the more you realize how much you don't know. <laughs> um, and becoming comfortable with that has been important. And that was kind of a lesson from the severe winners. Wanting to know as much as you can, but also becoming comfortable with not knowing everything. And so that's been one thing. Um, the other thing for me, um, the idea of the work-life balance. Uh, it's a relative work-life balance. Um because you're doing a lot of things, right? And then, you know, in, 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 I'm not coaching full-time, but I'm, I'm I'm teaching, I'm doing the research, I'm trying to raise a family, I'm, I'm, I'm coaching. Um, it's a lot. And, and just trying to find ways to make it work, but you have to make it work. Um, you can't really neglect any any particular area because then that that, that becomes a crack and that's where, where you know, how things um, fall apart, really. So... That, and, and then finally, and I know I'm, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but for me, it was just liberating, especially in the sense of a, these guys that have won so much, um, they still felt insecure. Uh, we even talked about this idea of the serial insecurity. Despite winning all this, they still doubt themselves. They still uh, they, they have a, a grounded self-belief based on what they've done and how hard they work. But there's always an element of uh, reasonable self-doubt uh, and that's okay, you know, and, and I felt that was liberating. Like if, if these guys can, if these super coaches can doubt themselves, I can feel a bit uh, uneasy about things. And that's okay. That's part of the uh, the whole process. So, yeah, that that's, uh, that's how it's affected me. We might come back to self-doubt later on, but I'll hand over to uh, to David because I know he wants to, to drill into sort of the philosophical standpoint. Um, so your research, which I love, by the way, need to say that straight away, um, found that serial winning coaches practices were anchored upon a very clear philosophical standpoint. So, Cliff, could you explain for our listeners what the key parts and functions are of a coaching philosophy? Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting area. Um, coaches articulating their philosophy and how you get at that, uh, I think, is interesting because um, it's easy to go to the Internet and look up all the famous people and what they said and then sort of cut and paste and go, yeah, this is who I am, you know. So I guess the great coaches are able to tell a story about their coaching practice who actually highlights one of the key values and, and uh, principles upon which they, they base their coaching. And for me, a clear philosophy provides uh, coaches with a framework for how you go about your work and ensuring the quality of that work. And frameworks like that, a philosophical framework, gives you clarity of vision and purpose, which these people have, um, especially when you're faced with dilemmas. You know, dilemmas really test you in terms of how you go about rational decision-making. So um, 
you need to be clear about what those principles are. And, and don't assume, too, that these coaches, uh, when they started their careers, had clarity of vision and purpose and their philosophy. That, that, that They learned over time what that is, and that's the journey we all have to go on. But these coaches were visionaries. Like what was um, was amazing was that they were thinking eight to ten years ahead. And having that clarity of what's required to win in two Olympic cycles ahead and understand that them as leading coaches are actually influencing the trends of their sport uh, and rule changes, right, puts them in a really great position, but they have such clarity of where they're going and how they're going to get there. And that's why I think um, those um, those coaches who have clarity of their, you know, why they do what they do and what those principles are, I think are really, really important. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I think something that really interests me is is the extent to which coaches change over time because they can change the game, like like Guardiola changes the game. He goes to goes to Bayern Munich and changes the way German football is played, but he also changes himself in that process. So can you talk a little bit about how coaches develop their philosophy over time and how flexible that philosophy can be? Because I always think of it as like an anchor with a ship and the ship rides the tide but comes gets pulled yeah. back. I think there's philosophies about how you coach, right? and there's the philosophies about how you understand the sport that you do coach. And I think that's what's more malleable is going to be uh, understanding the the ebbs and flows of the sport and the context. What probably doesn't change too much over time once you have clarity of who you are uh, as a person and what really is important in terms of your values that shapes how you go about how you understand yourself and how you work with other people, and how do you get other people to work together? Yeah, big challenges. <laughs> um, <laughs> either of you, because I think this is going to play a big role in in, in philosophy and, and change over time, what did you find about the role that self-reflection plays um, with the coaches that you interviewed? It's, um, it's a big role. And, and we'll, I mean, we found that not many of them had a... Um, like a set process of self-reflection where they're going to sit down and reflect on themselves. I mean, they did a lot of the reflection with the teams, debriefing, uh, briefing and debriefing before before and after games, competitions. Um, they didn't really, in terms of reflecting on their own practice, on you know, on their own, um, they, they didn't seem to have a, a, a lot of um, mechanisms to do that or, or like set processes to do that. However, they were very introspective and very reflective uh, by nature. And they were constantly questioning themselves um, to the point that, uh, you know, going back to the idea of the work-life balance, they had to find ways to stop doing that. So a lot of them talked about, I need to find a hobby, I need to find something else to do because I'm constantly thinking about it. Um, so although it wasn't like, um, they didn't, we didn't get a lot of examples of people writing journals or anything like that or having, um, I said, uh, if you want a mentor to discuss things with, uh, officially, uh, they, they were doing that constantly and they had a lot of critical friends as well, uh, mm-hmm. people that they could go to and discuss things with them. Um, so it didn't, to me, didn't look like a systematic way of reflecting, but it was constantly there. They were mm-hmm. constantly doing it one way or another. Yeah, I think what's interesting, I've been immersed in your reading your work and listening about your work for a few, quite a few weeks now. And 
this process of change and reflection, a, a phrase that came to mind for me was relentless becoming. They're relentlessly becoming someone and something different and changing the game in the process, as Cliff said, which I think is fascinating. I'm going to hand over to Paul, but just before I do, because I think he's going to ask a question about connections and, and just to sort of observe something that Cliff said about uh, philosophies. I love the stories about Alex Ferguson. That in his office, he had that picture of the 11 guys on the girder when they were building the the, the skyscrapers in New York. And he used to point to it and say to people, that's teamwork. Uh, and it happened <laughs> to be 11, 11 people. Right? Uh, and the other thing he used to do at Carrington when they were training, he would stop training and say, right, look at that. And it was the geese flying over in the V. And one would take over the front and have, one would have a rest. And So I think there's interesting things there that, as Cliff said, tell us about who you are and who you're becoming as a coach. Who you've discovered that you are. So Joe, I just would like to continue on talking about teams if we could. And one of the things that fascinates me in your research and more broadly with teams in society is the way that the pandemic impacted connection within the group, groups everywhere, teams everywhere. And I'm interested to hear what you found in your research were the key things that could be done to drive better connection within a group. Uh, that's the uh, million-dollar question, right? Because uh, when when a team is connected, uh, they're more likely to to achieve, right? And um, not only from our research, but there's, there's quite a bit of research out there around the idea of there's a number of things that for me are really really important. Um, first, do we have a common purpose? Have we really defined what we what we want to achieve together? What, what you know? What, what's our why? Right? Why are we doing this? Uh, um, and that's really important. And I think like like Cliff was saying, um, and for example, David was giving the example of Guardiola, that clarity of vision that provides that common purpose um is really important. I think um I think these coaches really were able to provide that that path. You know, uh, one of the coaches talked about um he knew the destination and he knew the motorway that took him there, um, and he got everybody on that motorway. Uh and he knew that sometimes they would have to maybe take a um, a diversion to fix a, a flat tire or put some petrol in the car or whatever, but they knew where the motorway was. So the idea of common purpose, common vision, knowing where you're going is important. And I think at the same time, these coaches were able to create an environment of genuine care where everybody felt cared for. Uh, and, you know, within the constraints of professional sport, don't get me wrong, I mean, there's no escaping the fact that if we're talking about football, for example, you can only play 11 people. So you're going to have, you, you're pretty much uh, firing half the team every every weekend, okay? And, and you have to cope with that. But uh, how building relationships from the coach to the players and helping the players build those relationships um, contributes to to dealing with all the, the, with all the bad moments that you're going to go through because it's, it's, you can't escape those bad moments. Um, a couple of other things really within... I think connection and accountability are very much related. And we found that these coaches were constantly keeping people accountable, even themselves. Um, and, and that creates a culture where it's not it's not a blame culture because a blame culture and an accountability culture is different. Okay, Blaming to, to put people on the spot uh, or to name and shame is different to just keeping people accountable. And, and I think these guys are able to get everybody to hold each other accountable, not just not just from them. Um, so to me, to, those are some of the things that uh, that come across. And, and finally, the idea of respecting the individual within the team. Uh, I know we always talk about there's no I in team. 
uh, I, think, I think these guys talk about something different. And, and again, from my own experience as a coach, there's multiple eyes. Is how do you get those eyes to to work together? Is respecting everybody for who they are, ensuring that everybody understands their role and, and their responsibility, how they contribute to the whole. Um, I think although we don't spend enough time on that. Um, I always think that in, in team sports, sometimes we take it all for granted a little bit uh, and the individual gets lost in the team. And and again, it's one of those things that, I, that if I look at the things that I can improve, that's one always top of my list. How do I really take care of the individual within the, uh, the, the huge mass that is a team of 15 people, right? Or in football, 30 people. I, I coach basketball, so... I deal with about 15 to 17 people. Um, yeah, that's that's what we saw. Yes. Can I just add to that? Um, I think the great coaches uh, come to the understanding very early in their careers that they're in the people business. And you often hear people rhetorical in that way, but their actions don't suggest that. They're there just to pursue excellence, but they forget they're actually dealing with people. Um, and I think these people actually know they're in the people business. They promote the sense of care that underpins trust, that actually promotes uh, adaptive relationships between people, and that then actually allows you to push the envelope. The people who try to push the envelope before they get that foundational care, and when Sergio's talking care, it's it's mutual care. It's mutual trust, right? The, 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 the athletes are caring for the coach, as much as the coaches caring for the athletes, and that individual and collective care uh, works both at you know, as understandably at the at the individual level and also at the group level, whether it's a squad in athletics or swimming, or whether it's a team. And I think it, it emphasises that I think the capacity of these these coaches as leaders to focus on yeah, there's a bit of me in this, but my focus is actually on how do I make us special. How do I promote the sense of we? But in that we, yeah, there is a bit of me, and that's okay. Right? And that's why that self-compassion and that, that self-care, but also other people providing care for you, allows you to create an environment where people do form adaptive relationships uh, and a greenhouse where people can thrive. Another thing that came out of your work that really fascinated me was the demands on the high-performance coach to not only deal with his athletes, but to deal with the interdisciplinary team, yeah. you know, which is a, a very modern challenge, but really, again, demands, <clears throat> pardon me, demands heightened interpersonal skills uh, and demands really sensitive things like crossing boundaries into other areas of expertise where, where you go from being a relative expert to being a relative novice. And there's been some really interesting work on this um, using Wenger trainers um, frameworks. Uh, yeah. So I think there's some really interesting things going on there. Sorry, Paul, you were going to say something. No, I was going to say I'm the uh, non-pracademic uh, in the interview tonight, <laughs> but care has been the number one thing I've found through, with my corporate hat on, through the, the 200 interviews, the 200 plus interviews. If you'd asked me when I started this to give you my top 10 leadership words, care wouldn't have made the list. But mm. now... It's it's the number one word that I hear most frequently from from the people I've interviewed, and it's really challenged the way that I think about leadership. And I think I fundamentally changed as a result uh, of of that learning. Not, you know, all change is is 
takes time to bed in, but I feel that change within myself. So it's a very powerful idea. I think one of the really good outcomes of the research and the capacities that we've had to uh, share the information about these the journeys of these people is that um, our favourite two-word sentence is context matters. So it's understanding what does care look like or what care could look like in for you in your context and how do you know actually somebody cares about you? What does that actually, because that's a feeling. <laughs> you feel that they care for you. Yeah, that's hard to articulate. But so it's a sense you have that's quite intangible, but it actually shapes then the relationship you have with other people. And that care, going back to David's point about, you know, we've got to shift the discourse away from the head coach to actually the coaching team, and that, that's starting to happen. But you, you have to take responsibility, as these people did, for everyone in your setting, you know. And sometimes, um, you know, the problem we have a little bit, I think, with modern coaching is that they stick they stick in their lane. But actually, we need coaches to challenge biomechanists. You know, that's what I love doing when I was a coach. It's like you're challenging them and they're challenging you. That dialogue and those, those challenges are necessary for you to grow. But if coaches don't know the language of science, they don't know the language of medicine, they don't know the language of psychology uh, and how to get the best out of everyone and how you actually do work as an interdisciplinary team, you're not going to have the success. And these people overall were able to harness the collective. Well, I was going to say, uh, I think, well, two things really. One, one sort of catchphrase that I've been using for a few years now is the idea of Connection before correction, you know the uh, you, you can really um, let, just teach people before you've connected with them, before they trust you, before they know you care, uh, and you can expand that to any area of life. Really, so I think we need to spend a lot more time building the connection before we try to to do the correction. I think that and and that's one of the things that I'm trying to leave by um, in in my current coaching, in my teaching, even with my kids, you know, with my own kids. Um, and the other thing that for me is significant about these coaches is what we are looking at here is how to win sustainably because anyone can win once. Winning repeatedly um, and creating an environment where people can sustain that performance for years and not only the athletes, the support team, yourself as a coach, that's a different matter because I think that that's what's really, that's where the, um, that's where the big, trick is here is how can we be sustainable in in our success and without that foundation of care and that foundation of trust i think it's impossible to to um and the, and the foundation of self-care as well it's impossible to sustain success for that long if if all that is not in place because i mean we've seen coaches that have won once or twice and then they've disappeared because no one wants to work with them anymore um so i think to, to me that's really significant about these guys is they're building for the future as well. It's not just all about today. They have that sort of 2020 vision of I'm doing things for today and also for the future and keeping everybody in that, in that optimal mode that allows us to be sustain, uh, sustainable, really. That's really interesting. Um, I'm going to take us down a different rabbit hole. Um, <laughs> you emphasise in your book that serial winning coaches and their developmental journeys are unique and idiosyncratic. Uh, although you mostly provide common themes and characteristics because you're you're trying to pull all that together. Could each of you maybe tell us a little bit about the outliers within the outliers? 
the unusual cases, the mavericks uh, within your sample. Maybe Cliff, you could kick us off with that one. Oh, look, I, I broadly, because Sergio did more of the interviews than I did, but um, I think that one of the things we tried to get across was, um, firstly, these are outliers amongst outliers. So a lot of people have been, you know, able to, uh, not a lot, a few people get to, to coach uh, professional team uh, to league titles and gold medalists. So these these certainly were outliers about amongst outliers. But um, the interesting thing is that we're all probably hardworking. Now, an interesting question around that then is, well, why are we so hardworking? But there are a couple of these serial winning coaches actually who were self-reported uh not hardworking, and the same with their athletes reporting. You know, we send a message that you need to be fluid and responsive to a dynamic environment to be effective and know how to execute when these coaching moments uh, emerge. But not everyone's as flexible as other people. So uh, Sergio used that, that analogy before about, you know, you know where you're going and you get you, you pick the right highway. Not everyone deviates and comes back on. Some people just keep going. So... Whilst there was a, a trend with some of these things, not everyone, um, not everyone sort of followed that trend. And the other one was that a major motivational drive for these coaches was, was uh, a redemptive theme around atonement, uh, to atone for where I didn't succeed somewhere else. But that's not always the case. That's that's not the main driver for everyone. So the key with all of that is, well, what are the drivers? And then how do we get you to be more understanding of those drivers for you and how that shapes then how you enact your your, your praxis? Yeah, I think um, if I'm right, you, you looked at personality profiles and you, you established that uh, these coaches, these serial winning coaches, were emotionally stable, socially competent, hardworking. But what I found really interesting, you also said that on some of the other um scales and dimensions there they weren't necessarily empathetic they weren't necessarily curious which is really interesting because you'd expect those qualities to be there in situ as well as the other ones so yeah i, I just find it i've always loved maverick talent uh, and sergio's talking about teams one of my favorite coaches dave sexton used to say every great team needs its mixture of soldiers and artists and i love that um and, and i just like the unusual stories sometimes so one of your coaches if i'm right didn't have a background in playing sport at any high, any level at all, virtually. So I, I found that interesting. I don't know if you've got any comments on that. Yeah, well, I'm going to come back to you. When, I don't know who said this, but I read a book a while back um, in defining these two types of people that you need in a, in a group. They talk about every group needs their rock stars and their rock solids. Um, yeah. And that really stuck with me. Um, and then... And, and, and it's true, really, you know, highly functional groups will have those too, uh, because you need both. Um, in terms of the, uh, the, the the journeys and so, yeah, there were, there were a couple of them that hadn't really played at a high level, um, either because they realized really early that they weren't good enough. And they said, well, I still want to be, I love the sport. So the, my, only, my only way to continue being linked to the sport is through coaching. So from, a, from 16, 17 years of age, Fully committed to um, to becoming a coach, uh, not having it played, uh, not having played at a high level, but really having made up for that, because by the time they were thirty five, they had been coaching for twenty years already, um, and and they were really you know still students of the game. Um, but we had some some interesting 
diverse journeys, right? When, like, for example, one one of the coaches, uh, after he finished as, a, as an athlete, he disappeared from the sport for 10 years and went and set up his own business and did other things. Um, and then he was saying, actually, when I came back to the sport, all the skills I had to be a good coach, I picked up from, from setting up my own business and running my own business. Um, but then you got the other extreme where uh, we have this other coach, super successful coach, um, like one of the winningest in Europe in, 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 in his sport, where at 31, he was the team captain for the national team. He was the national team captain. They were just about to jump on the plane to go to the Europeans. And he gets a phone call from his own club saying, look, we've lost the, the head coach. We want you to head coach next year. But the condition is that you have to jump off that plane, not go to the Europeans <laughs> and, and become the coach today. Um, and he went like, yeah, that's fine. He, he, he didn't go to the Europeans, was the national team captain, just went back on the plane and said to his teammates, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I'm off. Uh, good luck at the Europeans. And, and that's it. And he took a massive gamble. Um, or some of the coaches that uh, when they started coaching, instead of going straight into the high level, they actually purposefully decided to coach at the lower level to, to really have space and time to develop their craft away from the limelight. So everybody found their own path. Um, and, mm -hmm. and if I can say something, I think they all took risks. I think they, they are they are good with risk. They are some, they're not outrageous risks, uh, although some of them might be calculated risk, um, but they're, they're, not, they're not really risk averse, these guys. Uh, I think we, we found them to be quite brave in, in the decisions they make. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Sergio, could I follow up and go from the coaches to the teams they lead? And some of your research looks into the pillars that go into what you describe as a high-performing culture. In fact, you identify five pillars. Could you tell us about those? Yeah, I mean, one, one way or another, we've kind of probably touched on on all of them. But um, and again, I, I don't think any of this is rocket science. Uh, what, what's really rocket science is being able to do it consistently. Um, like, uh, for example, high expectations and high expecting high standards from everybody. Like, really, not taking second best. Um, that's not rocket science. But actually, to develop a system where there's constant accountability for, for that to happen and the expectations are there is is, is significantly difficult. Um, linked to that, the second pillar was leaving no stone unturned, really. What can we do to improve our performance? And just constantly looking for 
different ways to get an edge, really, uh, either from a, on the personal side of things, on the tactical side of things, on the equipment side of things, but constantly looking for ways to, to get an edge. Uh, third point was really around the idea of developing a, an environment that is a training environment that is really challenging, where we're constantly raising the bar. The moment we, uh, there was a, a really good passage in the uh, in the Guardiola book that I was showing you before, where after they win the uh, the Premier League for the first time in 2018 uh, with Guardiola, uh, within 10 minutes of winning the game, he's already talking to his assistant coaches about next year we have to do this, this and that, or not, or we're not going to win again. Uh, and they went on to win it twice in a row, right? But that idea of constantly raising the bar, um, either in training or from one year to the next. Uh, and interestingly for me, because sometimes the, uh, the literature around motivation talks about uh, internal competition being a negative thing. Um, <laughs> not in this case. At this level, internal competition is 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 part of the game. And it just drives people. It's, it's how you manage that internal competition. How do you generate it? But Again, uh, anecdotally, well, not from the research, but also then listening to a lot of athletes and uh, the best teams are constantly challenging each other. And in a way, uh, they have two players in the same position that can constantly challenge each other to make each other better, to keep each other on their toes. Um, that the, the fourth pillar, um, and Cliff mentioned it before, is the idea of the greenhouse effect, where we are creating an environment that is stable, dependable, while challenging, that creates that greenhouse effect that, that that leads to people blossoming within that st stability and dependability. And the fifth uh, pillar, which I was terrible at uh, when I was doing national teams, is the, um, the idea of being able to manage upwards and influence the people above you. Coaches are relatively comfortable managing down to players, managing across to the support team and the assistant coaches. But we're not always that good managing the people that really make the decisions that have a massive impact on on your performance. The the performance director, the the club owner, um, and these guys uh, these guys took that to heart. They they really wanted to get uh, ahead of the curve, and they were constantly trying to influence the um, the people above them. Because, like I say, these people are making really important decisions that can completely derail your your best laid plans. So those were the five. Cliff, you make uh, uh, many useful recommendations for future recruitment, development, and the ongoing support of high-performance coaching talent. So I just thought we'd ask you what practical applications in coach education and development have been implemented as a result of this or are in the pipeline as a result of this work? Um, I think there's a, a significant delay in time between ideas and <laughs> uh, suggestions and actually behaviour change. So... Uh, I think we're very modest about potential behaviour change, but I think we talk about it's it's a classic wicked problem, you know, identifying, recruiting, and developing people. You know, there's no right or wrong answers, and some answers are better than others, or better ways of going about it. Um, but you never really know how people uh, take on board your ideas, and you might they might play with those ideas. We're hopeful that people will think about some of the the ways we're suggesting. And they might have some adaptations of those ideas or they might have completely different ideas. But we actually want people to actually think more deeply about the whole process, um, both in terms of identifying and recruiting and employing, but also how we go about um, developing the next generation of, of young people uh, who want to be coaches. 
because it's um I think one of the things we came to was that we don't give people the tools to actually help themselves. So, you know, you spoke before about Anson with the self-leadership. You know, coaches have to be self-leaders, but we don't give them the tools. Like in a psych test, let's do a personality trait test and now I'll tell you who you are. Like the computer spits out a little formula and this is who you are. How do we actually give coaches and people the tools to be able to have some autonomy around making sense of who they are? Because actually only they know uh, how how the language they use actually describes who they are. And it's difficult sometimes to put into particular language um, how you describe who you are and what you do. So I think how do we successfully give people the tools to help themselves know themselves and and how do we use some of those tools perhaps then to better understand the people we work with? Mm. Right? And I think that... Um, we're all in a race in, com- in competitive sport about how do we learn deeper and faster than the opposition. And part of that for a coach is as soon as you start working, the clock started, it's ticking. You've got to go about business, like uh, Sergio said before, about observing and, and getting some information, getting to know people, but the clock started. <laughs> you know, you've got to have a very efficient means and effective means of getting to know people. And when we interview coaches for a job, there's an assumption that they're already an expert. We actually have to change that belief system so that bosses and, and board members who employ leaders have an understanding they're not there yet. All of these coaches had this notion of striving and becoming. I'm striving to be the best I can be and I'm always becoming because they were not there yet. They, they knew that they could get better. There was always ways you can tweak, tweak things. So how do we get people who employ and evaluate the quality of coaches, coaches to understand that um, our job is we employ them. They're not experts yet. They, they may never be. I don't consider myself to be an expert, but I think I'm moving in that direction. I might get there. I might not. Um, but how do we get them to be supported in that role? Because it's messy. It, it's very messy. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm reminded of John Buchanan's quote, which is like, I don't want to be called an expert. I want to be called someone who's got some expertise, which is the way I think about it. But as a coach developer myself, the three of the messages I took away from your work, um, which were nicely reinforced for me, was we've got to help people to know themselves, as you said, but we've got to help them to know their evolving self, their, their, their changing self. And then the two things for high performance coaches that we've already mentioned is that we need to give them some tools uh, to, to cope effectively with interdisciplinary working and managing up on the micro politics. It's a fascinating idea. I was invited recently to come along and talk to a group of executive coaches about what I've learned from all the research. And mm. one, I said three things. I, I, I talked about the focus they have on people, culture, and their own performance. And I was sort of reflecting on the fact that the people I've interviewed, they 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 focus on their performance they reflect, they think, they write their philosophy in a way that I don't think corporate leaders do. And I've got this great video, you know, where they talk about reflection, but not ruminating. They're able to reflect, action, move on. So they've got this debrief cycle that works really well. And I think it's a a very rich area for learning for people that aren't in sport, you know, to be able to capture that and move on. But 
It's not about my thoughts. It's about uh, you two uh, learned professors. And what I'd like to do before I hand over to David for the final question is just both of you, if I could just ask you for just, I want to talk about leadership qualities that you've identified in serial winning coaches. But if I could just ask you for three words or three qualities that you've noticed in these people. And perhaps, Cliff, if I could ask you to go first. <laughs> well, as you know, in leadership, that uh, uh, intelligence is seen to be uh, a key quality that seems to be consistent across that, that, that uh, effective or great leaders. Um, but it's also not whether you are intelligent or whether people think you are. So and I think in this case, too, I think people have a, a trust. Often when we talk about trust, we talk about in terms of integrity and honesty. But athletes want to know that they can trust you to be a performer in your own right, to be able to help shape their confidence for them to perform when they need to in the big gig. So I think that you need to have, you need to be smart, and we know there's multiple intelligences. Um, but I think these people are very, very good at being fluid in terms of the way they think. They challenge their thinking. They're very fluid in the way they use their emotions to enhance performance or to remain calm in, in the case of a storm. And that then sort of influences then how they um, think about behaving. And we spoke about uh, social intelligence, I would think, is actually more important than emotional intelligence. Right? And I think Sergio might like me saying that because it's his, his own challenges as a coach. But the great coaches, and I think the great people, um, they notice things. They see things. It's the little things. It's, there's a shift in a behaviour. It's, it's a minute thing. But it's not only do they notice it, they actually notice it to inform their actions. And for me, social intelligence is, is a, a quality that these people are continually getting better at. So we say to athletes in team sports, um, what are you seeing in front of you? What's your perceptual field? Well, it's the same for coaches. What are you seeing and not seeing? And when you're in the trenches too much, you don't see things. So where do you even position yourself? And then when you do position yourself to be able to see some of these things, what are you seeing? And what are you not seeing that's important to see? I mean, if I can add to that, um, uh, one of the, uh, when we looked at the, uh, what allows you know, what allows these coaches to to do the things that they do. We talked about cognitive and emotional and emotional flexibility. Um and and to me again, going back to the question of how is this influence you, um, I have to say that at times I haven't been very flexible in my past. Um and I I'm I'm trying to learn to be more flexible because this idea of being you need to be super adaptable. It's it's such a dynamic environment from from dealing with people to results that you can control um, to injuries to there's a million things happening that unless you have a high level of adaptability um, and and like like Cliff was saying to notice things and then adapt your behavior to to match the needs of the situation or the individual we talked about these coaches and they describe themselves as, as chameleons okay where they're constantly changing their colors to 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 match the the situation really so that adapt, adaptability uh, and being able to uh, going back to the idea of being a performer what performance is needed from you today in this particular moment what do they need from you do they need you to be the funny guy today do they need you to be the tough guy today 
Do they need you to be the super caring guy uh, today? Do they need you to be the supreme tactician today? Um, what, what, what do they need from you today? I think that that's important. Um, and then the, the other thing for me is the idea of being resilient. Uh, I think these guys just have a an understanding that, you know, this business is tough. It's not easy. And it's okay. We're going to have bad moments. Um, and, and again, I've realized that in a way, um, when things, when the proverbial hits the fan, okay, uh, you've got two choices. You can bring people down with you or bring them back up with you. Uh, and, and I think they, they, they choose to, uh, to, to, to bring people up with them. Uh, they, they realize that um, if you are the first person to go down, uh, you bring everybody down with you. Uh, and, and it's the opposite. They, they just really have a, a great ability. They talked about keeping a flat tone, you know, not, not going too high when you win and not going too low when you lose. Staying as flat as you can to keep people on that, on that level, you know, level, level, yeah, state really. Um, yeah, um, yeah, those are the things that really come to mind when when you have to boil it down to a few words. Okay, um, I love the story that I heard Sergio tell that Pep Guardiola wouldn't have made the cut <laughs> at the time that you got this sample of serial winning coaches together. So that reminds us, doesn't it, that we need to reappraise and revisit coaching performance periodically. You know, I also thought Sergio, because you're a basketball coach. I wondered if John Wooden would have made the cut because you guys wanted people who'd been successful across contexts and John Wooden tended to stay where he was. But you can answer that if you want, but I'll ask you someone else in a second. Um, imagine there's a simple <laughs> project then, learning from serial uh, winning coaches too. This time it's personal. Uh, what are you doing differently and why? Uh, could I start with Cliff maybe? Well, there's, um, well, firstly, I do like the title, so thanks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm thinking about a second book. Uh, no, Sergio might have been. Um, but we've actually, initially we started with 14 coaches and that's morphed into 17. There are people, like there's an Australian coach now that I'd love to interview, but I have interviewed that coach before um, along similar lines. But, again, to include these people into the data set would be really helpful. So I think it's important to think about continuing the research one thing that we would both do, uh, which was a response, I think that uh, Sergio got when he knocked on the door uh, and, and uh, the, the coach's wife answered the door because the initial 14 were all, were all male. She said, are you here to interview my summer or my winter husband? <laughs> and, and it's one of those things when you design something, you go like, oh, damn it, why didn't we interview their wives? We interviewed their athletes right, because we thought they would give us another perspective. But a lot of coaches communicate the challenges of everyday coaching in their home environment. Their, their wives and their partners are the people who are, are very um, giving them rational advice and supporting them uh, in the home environment. So to get their perspective, I think, would be great. But I also think that as society continues to be transformed and there's uh, the rise of technology, there's more women coaches, there's more recognition of women playing professional sport, I think we've got to keep evolving in, in how we shape these sorts of projects. I, actually, I am help, hopeful, though, um, that key qualities like care, a mutual trust um, and, and doing things to help others would still permeate um, a lot of the findings, but um, 
certainly uh, the other thing I think that we can get at is that, as you know, when you research and you you, you ask some questions, it begs other questions. <laughs> so uh, we hope in the book that we ask some of those big questions still and how you nuance. So before Sergio's talking about, um, you know, you want to be a chameleon, but you've got to be stable. So which is it? Like, how do you do that dance between being stable and dependable now, like, but actually I'm going to be fluid? But that, and it is a dance because there's you've always got these potentially what could be interpreted as uh, competing tensions that could actually compromise how they view you as a coach and as a person. So mm-hmm. I think there, there, there are a couple of things. Like getting some anecdotes, like you sound like Pep's got in that book, to get some deeper case studies um, would be great. It would be great to be able to go to these people's environments and actually see them in action for three months. Right, so if you've got some funding for us to do that, we're very, we're very uh, grateful to to perform that role. Okay, brilliant. Um, I, I I think you definitely get a sense of work life balance from the partners, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, relative, talking, relative, relative. Yes, relative work life. Um, talking about big questions. Uh, about a week ago, I'd become so immersed in learning from serial winning coaches' materials that I was walking in. And I had this light bulb moment of, wow, what, like, what does this tell us about humanity um, rather than thinking about humankind rather than being humane? So I know that's a big question and we probably have another hour on that, but I've got some thoughts. But any, I know you you said you were going to think about it, Sergio. So, so either of you really, what might this tell us about humanity, your work? That's a... That's a top question I, when when i saw your email with that question uh, my mind went in a uh, million directions so i'm gonna have a go and cliff please chip in um uh, whenever but first realization really is that about humanity we're, we're all humans we're all people uh, and even these super achievers and the, the athletes they work with they're still people and and we can't really escape that and and actually it's not escaping that it's the we have to harness that, that they are people. And the more we create the, the environment where where everybody feels cared for um, and uh, everybody feels that they can trust each other, um, the better, really. So to me, that that's... Because I, I always joke, I have a slide that I use in my presentations where I have a Count Dracula and the Wicked Witch of the West, because that's, that's who I was expecting these people to be, right? They're, they're ruthless, like, win at all costs, all about me. And we found something completely different. We didn't find the uh, the Count Dracula or, or the Wicked Witch of the West. We we found people doing extraordinary things with extraordinary people, uh, and, and and the idea of people is, is really important to me. Um, I'm gonna have a go on another one, and then I'll let Cliff have, have his say. Um, related to this idea of uh, of people, um, one of the stories that I tell uh, the students and, and also presenting the work is the idea. At, you may have heard the fable of the north wind and the sun. Okay, so the north wind and the sun uh, were looking at this traveler coming down the road, and they had a bed with each other. The, the traveler was carrying wearing a, a cloak, a heavy coat, right? And they said, "Let's see which one of us is stronger and can remove the coat from from the traveler." Right. So the north wind started blowing really hard and made it really cold and rain and lightning. And all that did, obviously, was the traveler just hung out to the cold even more, right? Whereas the sun just shone and made it really warm, and naturally the cold came off, right? So for me, that's the idea of 
as a coach, we can be really like the North Wind, uh, but really we want to sustainably get performance and people to 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 do what they want to do. And nothing beats warmth, um, and and we 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 have to have. There might be times when we have to be quite straight, but with that foundation of warmth, um, you know what we, what we call in the book the idea of the caring determination. If the caring is not there, no amount of determination is going to get the job done. Um, so I'll, I'll let Cliff continue. Well, that's, that's a very good start, Sergio. Uh, Dave, a great question. And for, for us, this is a really good example of how we want people to play with our findings. You know, what does it mean for you in your context and what does it mean for some of the bigger picture stuff? So I think there's one conversation might be around the value proposition of sport. You know, and I think we often talk about, and, and, and my investment in sport and wanting to do this sort of work is because I believe in the potential of sport. You know, but as we know, half the research says sport's a good thing and the other half says it's not a good thing because people have differential experiences with sport. But sport's got the potential to shape and reshape uh, or transform society. And we often talk about, um, and Paul's there about, corporate and business to sport and, and how they learn from sport and how sport learns from corporate and business. But I actually see there's potential here for sport to actually reshape and transform society rather than the other way around, rather than actually being a microcosm of, of the broader society. So how might we shift to becoming a more caring society? Because as we all know, in West, modern Western democracies, there's an increasing focus on me. There's an increasing focus in, on it's all about me and uh, I judge my success if I've got more than somebody else. So it's about ego. It's about status. You know, that goes back when you talk about, you know, uh, humanity and humankind, that before we actually had land ownership, people worked together. And then ever since then, there's been an erosion of that to uh, people competing with each other. So it's okay to compete with each other, but can we do it for the collective good? as opposed to now I've got more than someone else. And that's what we found with these, these coaches. They have this balance. There's sometimes, that, again, it's a bit of a dance between care and challenge. But I think a clear, clear message for me out of the book was really good people, good citizens can actually be highly successful. You don't have to be an arsehole to be a great coach. And that goes back to Dracula, <laughs> and and I've seen that I've seen that that slide so many times. But it's true, you can be a really good person, a good citizen, and be highly successful. They're not binary, hmm. all right? They're actually high challenge and high care is achievable. And these coaches have demonstrated that. And what can other industries learn from that? And what can we learn as democracies or attempts to be democratic? How do we actually inform? societal shifts in this way. So getting this message out, uh, and if we can do that in other contexts, they're the good stories we want to tell. They're not always what the media want to tell, right, because it's not as sensational, but we want to get these sort of good stories out to actually promote the importance of becoming a good person. I think the idea of high care and high challenge being possible and becoming a good person is a pretty good place for us to finish. Gentlemen, it's been an absolute masterclass tonight. I feel like you've condensed years and years and years <laughs> of study into the interview. 
But I hope that we can twist your arm to get you back on to talk about many of the other fascinating elements you've talked about tonight. But thank you all very much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on serial winning coaches and found one or two things that you can bring to your own dinner table, locker room or work table for discussion. When I listened back, some of the other key highlights that stood out for me were how serial winning coaches still doubt themselves and feel a sense of insecurity. The importance of internal competition to drive motivation and increase accountability within the team. And how the great coaches understand very early in their careers that they are in the people business and how this helps them build mutual care I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. And just before we go, if you have any feedback, then please let us know. Just like Kevin Rutherford, who after listening to our interview with Cody Royal said, this is a fantastic interview. Cody, your insights and perspective is valuable not only in sports, but for business and in life. Well done and thank you for sharing. Thanks, Kevin. We love the interaction with the people around the world who listen. And so if you have any feedback or comments, please let us know. And of course, if they're positive ones, then let someone else know too. All the details on how to connect with us are in the show notes or on our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs>